Orthodox Easter. Say that to you for a moment, you mind? You have no idea? Now, what does that mean, right? Well, that is today. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. It's why we continue our Easter series during uh, this time to the Sunday after Easter. Orthodox Easter is the Sunday that we that we worship with our Eastern brothers and sisters across the world who celebrate at a different time as well. And so I wanted to extend this series through this Sunday for us to kind of commemorate that day as well with other people around the world as they celebrate Easter. And so we today we end our Easter series together, The Gift of the Resurrection, as we have been talking through the I Am statements. <clears throat> and we have chosen three of those. Today, I am the vine. It is the very last I am statement that Jesus makes to his disciples, to his followers. And so this series is really about who Jesus is, much more than just what he has done. And, and I say, well, why do, you, why do we talk about it in that manner? Because our confidence and what he does is rooted very much in who he is. Amen? That's where our confidence lies. So if he is not who he says he is, then all the things that he has done really are meaningless. We kind of discovered that last week from the book of 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote about the resurrection. And he said simply this, without the resurrection, everything is meaningless. Our faith is meaningless. And so what we realize is that our confidence in what he does is rooted in who he is. So we want to explore again this morning this thought about who Christ is and maybe reintroduce ourselves to Jesus or introduce yourself to Christ today for the first time. So what we find in John chapter 15, as Corey read this morning, is this intimate conversation known by theologians, perhaps one of the most intimate conversations that Jesus has with his followers. So can I set this up for you for a moment, going back just a verse to that of uh, John chapter 14 and verse 30, two verses actually, verse 30. And here's what Jesus says in the chapter just before chapter 15. I will no longer talk with much with you, he says, for the ruler of this world is coming. What he's talking about is that his impending arrest and his trial, his mock trial, and that of his crucifixion. But look at the words after that. These are powerful words. It says, he has no claim on me. What a powerful statement that he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here is what he says to his followers. So what he's doing, he's making the heart of his father known, yes, but this powerful statement that even though things may look like they're out of control, I am ultimately in control because I am God. What is, that's a great way, I think, to start out our study as we read through this, as we process through all these memorable moments through that of the resurrection season, is that we realize that it is God that is absolutely in control, even when things seem to be out of control. Amen? Isn't that true? Yes. So maybe you can apply that to a moment in your life right now as we begin this study together. For he says, I am, and, and this is a powerful statement, that I am the vine. And he speaks this to his disciples. Powerful because... What it, it is a powerful statement because what it does, it simply speaks to both Jews and Greeks. And there's an understanding here, maybe not so quite uh, evident to you and I, but as we kind of flesh this out for a moment together, I think we'll have a, a greater understanding of this discussion that Jesus has with his followers. So John 15, verse 1, it says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So this sets the tone for the next 10 verses. If you miss this verse, then you're going to draw a very, I think, inaccurate conclusion to who God is and who Jesus is if you miss what God is saying to us in this very first verse. So I don't know if you've ever come in on a conversation, maybe halfway through, right? 
and you hear where that conversation is at that moment. You haven't heard the context prior to that. And so you draw a conclusion as to what the substance of that conversation is. And many times you find that, well, you're mistaken as to what the context or the substance of that conversation is. So it's very much like this conversation Jesus has with his followers. If you miss verse 1, then you're really not going to be able to put everything together after this. And so why does Jesus choose to use this metaphor where he says in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Why does Jesus choose the metaphor of the vine? Maybe it's not as impactful for you and I until we dig into it a little more. So when we understand what he's saying, I think this perhaps will make much more sense to you and I this morning. Because it's loaded with meaning, this I am the true vine. Because as you were to go in the temple in Jerusalem, right over the entrance of the temple in Jerusalem would be this large casting, this large gold casting, and it would be the casting of a vine. It means very much to those Jewish people and the nation of Israel as well. If you look through the Old Testament, you find the imagery of the vine that is mentioned many times, especially in places like the book of Jeremiah by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, where he talks about that of Israel being a wild vine and they produce sour grapes. And so we want to talk about that in just a minute. So to the Jews, this vine, because they see themselves as a nation, the nation of Israel as being the people of God and them being the people of God only. So they see themselves as the vine. And now Jesus is standing before them and he's saying, I am the true vine. And man, it must have kind of set their teeth on edge to hear Jesus say this and to wonder what he's saying about him being the true vine. Because to them, it is a big deal. But yet they are, he says, you are a vine in a way, but yet you produce sour grapes. And so I thought, well, what does this mean? You know, what is Jesus saying? What is the Old Testament prophet saying? And what is Jesus saying as I put all this together? Then what I realize is this, that Jesus shows up and he says, I'm doing what you cannot do. And I'm being what you have not been able to be as a nation is what he's saying to them. Jesus does for you and I what we could never do is what he does so that we could become what we would never become without him is what he's doing. There's this contrast between that of the vine Israel and that of the true vine Christ. And so what he's saying is to Israel and to you and I that no no matter how hard you tried to be the vine, no matter how diligent you were to keep all the laws and all the commandments, in the end, ultimately, you failed at all of this, is what he's saying. Why? Because of your sinful nature, that you could never get it right. You know, I have people say to me all the time as a pastor, well, I, you know, I hope I'm right with God. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that. I just hope I'm right with God. And what I would tell you is this, that outside of Jesus, it is impossible to be right with God. Understand that. It is absolutely impossible. It is. Because only through the righteousness of Jesus that covers you and I through his work on the cross and that of the resurrection that we find ourselves in right standing with God. But outside of Jesus working in our life and the work of the gospel, it is impossible. It is impossible for you to ever make yourself right with God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to them where he says that, I am the vine. What you could never do, I have come to do on your behalf, is what he is saying. Because you could never get it right because of your sinfulness. That's why he calls himself the true vine. Because I've come to do what you could never do. And I don't know where you're struggling with this in your life. I think you can come to church all your life and still struggle with this idea of you having to be the vine, of you having to get it right, of you trying to earn something that God has already freely given you. And so what this picture is, this is a powerful picture of the gospel for you and I. He's saying to Israel, he's saying to his followers, 
that you have failed at being the vine, so I have come to be the true vine on your behalf, to do for you what you could never do in your life. And so without that understanding of him being the true vine, then the statement of the father being the vine dresser, the pruner, can seem very punitive, can it? It can, be, it can be as if he, you know, Jesus is the vine, then the Father is the punisher of us when we sin and when we fail in this life. So context is everything. You have to put the two together. Because if you skip over the first part of verse 1, just go to the second part of verse 1, and you read the part where it says, My Father is the vine dresser, it gives you a very inaccurate picture of God, is what it does. You have this picture of God as if He's coming into your life with this pair of giant hedge trimmers, these shears, and he's just waiting to lob off some kind of limb in your life because you are a failure. But what God says is this, I am the true vine. And if you see God as just a vine dresser alone outside of me being the true vine, then you have a very inaccurate picture of who God is. Very inaccurate is what he's saying. So Jesus enters our life and he does for you and I what you and I could never, ever do for ourselves. He says to his disciples that you could never get it, but I've got it for you. Jesus declares powerfully in this verse that I've got it. I've got it. He says to Israel that, yes, you have been fruitful in the past, but what the, what the fruit is that you have produced is that of sour grapes is what he's saying. And I know some of you are looking at me like, Mark, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't apply to me at all. You look at me like that you've been making really sweet wine all of your life when I know you and you have been producing a lot of sour grape juice. True. As me. As myself as well. And so here is a thought about who Jesus is. A couple of them as we work through this text together this morning. It says that Jesus is the true vine and the Father is the vine dresser. So here's what I want to say to you. A really feel-good, warm, fuzzy-feeling sermon for you this morning on Orthodox Easter. And that is prepare to be pruned. Is really what it is, right? Prepare to be pruned. I think that's important that we understand that. That if you're going to follow Christ, there's going to be some pruning in our lives. Can I get an amen on that? It's true. It's going to happen. Look at verse 2. He says, every branch in me, he's talking to you and I. He's the vine. We are the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It's this intimate conversation that makes you all fuzzy and warm on the inside, right? Like you have somebody standing over you with a big set of hedge clippers just waiting to lob off a limb in your life. So I think when we look at this verse, I have to ask a question to all of you in the room. And the question I want to ask you is this. Are you secure in your relationship with Christ? Are you secure in your relationship with Christ? Because... If you have read this verse in the past, verse 1, and you only focus on the second part of that as the father being the vine dresser, the pruner, then you have probably felt some real insecurity in your relationship with God and where you are with Christ this morning. You probably felt that. And so when I read this, what I realized is whole this whole metaphor of the tree, the fruit, the trimmer all makes a lot of sense. So I wrote in my notes this week a question, and it's this. To be Christian, to be Christian is to bear fruit. I think we can agree on that. That is what it means to be a Christian, to bear fruit. If there is no fruit, then is there genuine belief in my life? Wow. That's a thought. I think that's something you have to kind of set in for a moment, right? Right? To be Christian is to bear fruit. 
I think this text is very plain in this area. It is. So if I'm not bearing fruit, is there any genuine belief in my life? Now, I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, Mark, this is not about works. And you're asking me, no, no, no. Understand that John is going to make this very plain, recording the words of Jesus to you and I in just a moment about all of that. So that's not what this is about. But I want to, I think, then define for us what kind of fruit he's talking about. I think that's important. Because if we think this is about just some external religious thing in our life, then we're no different than the Pharisees because the Pharisees appeared, right, to bear great fruit. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you just saw them from the outside, then you would think they did perhaps. So that's not what he's talking about. But when I look at this text, it says, if you don't bear fruit, then you are cut off, some translations say. And if you bear fruit, then you're cut back. So it's kind of like the whole thing of my saying, you know, I can't win for losing, right? If I don't bear fruit, I'm cut off. And if I bear fruit, I'm cut back. So wow, let's get in the line for all of this cutting kind of stuff, right? I'm really excited about today, Mark. Thank you for just really, you know, encouraging us. But I think you have to understand why God does this in our life and what God is pruning and what fruit that we are bearing. I think that's important. But maybe you're looking at your life right now and you're thinking, wait a minute, how many sour grapes can I produce before I bankrupt my grace account, right? How many sour grapes can I produce before I bankrupt that account in my life? And and what I realized, this statement that we just read is much more about my rejection of Christ than Christ's rejection of me. Because this is the verse where so many people draw the question from, can I lose my salvation, right? Yeah, can I lose my salvation? My answer to that has always been, and I've said these to you so many times, it's not the right question, right? The right question is, how do I grow in my relationship with Christ to become more like him so I can make him known to others in a greater way. So how do I bear fruit? Because I think most of the time, people, when they ask me the question, can I lose my salvation, are looking for some kind of loophole in their life. Can I tell you, your spiritual life is very different than your tax return. Do you know that? And I know it's getting close to tax season, isn't it? Thank you, Mark, for encouraging us again, right? Yes, such an encouraging sermon this morning. It is. No, it is the truth. The question is, how do I grow in my relationship with Christ to become more like him so I can make him known to the world in a greater way? How do I bear fruit? That's what this is about. That's the question. So I need some help in this area. Because I'm not the vine, I am a branch. He is the true vine. When I tried to be a vine, I failed. Because all I produced was sour grapes. So how could I produce some good fruit in my life? Thank you for asking that question. You always ask the right questions, you do. So here's what I want you to see about God's heart for us. 1 Corinthians 3 and 9, it says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. I love this. God loves to get his hands into your life. God loves to get his hands in the dirt and the grime of your life. He does. That's what Jesus does, I think, best. He works in you. You are God's field. Because you have not arrived yet. Understand that because you have tried and you have failed just like Israel did in that of being a vine. Jesus comes and says, I've come to do something for you you could not do for yourself. And so you and I have failed. So God loves to get his hands into the dirt of our life. He does. You are God's field. So it brought me to this question. Why would the Lord prune what's fruitful, right? Because that's what he just said. 
He says, if you're going to bear fruit, you're going to be pruned. So why is God going to prune what is fruitful? So I can bear more fruit. It makes sense. But the question is, what am I to bear? What is he talking about? Is it that I look more religious? Is I come to church more? Is that what this is all about? You know, no, no. I can tell you exactly what it's about. It's exactly what Paul says to you and I in the book of Galatians chapter 5 in verse 22. Do you know what the fruit are? But the fruit, he says, not plural, but singular. They're all in one. You don't get to choose. Somebody once said that we're called to be fruit bearers, not fruit pickers. Amen? So you can't say, I just want one of these. And you know what? I'm just not interested in the rest. So the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Oh, that's a hard one, isn't it? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Wow. Jesus came to be what we could not be. So what is Christ? He's all of those things, correct? He's all of those things wrapped into one amazing package. He's pruning us in these areas of our life that you and I need to grow in so that we become more like him. And that means that you are his field. That means that he's going to get his hands into the soil of your life. This means that he's going to, he's going to work in the areas of your life where these fruits are not being manifested like they should. Wow. I want you to see the heart of the Father. This is important. This is what's intended here, for you to see the heart of God in all of this. But somewhere in the foolishness of our humanity, that somehow we have come up with this idea that to follow Christ and to following Christ, there's no room for difficulty in my life and there's no room for suffering and there's no room for doubt in some way in my life. If I'm going to follow Christ, then the road is absolutely going to be smooth and there's not going to be any bumps or potholes and there are not going to be any challenges and there's not going to be any hard moments. If you have any books like that in your library at home, then go home and please remove them and don't give them to someone else. Okay? No. We have this thought about our life and our growth in Christ that somehow it's this singular moment for us and that at some point we come to the front of the church or somebody prays for us and we have this instantaneous sanctification event that takes place in our life and all of a sudden man we are bearing all these fruit at one time and it's absolutely amazing and nobody around us knows who we are and that's not the way it works that's not the reality of our humanity it's not that at all that what i realize that this journey is a lifelong journey and there are days and i get it right and there are days and i get it really really wrong And so God keeps his hands in the fields of my life is what he's saying. That my growth in Christ much more resembles a crock pot than it does a microwave. True. It's slow. Do I need to say it one more time? I don't know. I don't know if that's just so theologically deep that it went over your head for a moment, right? But I think you have to really put your mind to that and realize that that's what our spiritual life and our growth is like with God. It is. Wow. It's what Jesus is teaching his followers just before the crucifixion. It's his last I am statement. So this must be really important words for you and I, right? Must be really important words for us that we look at and we examine and we set in for a moment. So then when I look at this in context, and I have to hurry because there's so much stuff here, but I have to sit here for a moment because when I look at this in the pure context of this, these verses, then I have to ask myself 
then what is he pruning? What is he pruning from our lives? And in context, well, I think, first of all, you could make a large list of things that God is pruning in your life. And none of them are incorrect, right? So maybe we should actually share three things with the person next to you that God is pruning out of your life. No, I'm not going to ask you to do that, right? No, because, you know, you would never probably come back again. But yet, I think it's, for, it's good if you have notes this morning when you get home, then make a list. None of them are incorrect. But in the pure context of this verse, what I realize, because God states the gospel, he states who he is, that he came to do what we could never do, to you and I could be what we could never be without him. That's the pure gospel for you and I. So in the context of all of this, what he's pruning out of my life in your life is my insecurity in my relationship with him. It's how I see him and how I think he sees me and what his intentions are toward me and what his heart is toward me as his child. It's my insecurity in my relationship. If I look at the setting and the timing and the language and everything that God says in this moment, then that's what he's talking about. Because what that does, that insecurity in my relationship with God will always enslave me to try to work for something from God that God has already freely given me out of his love and his grace for my life. That insecurity will always drive that kind of behavior within my life. That the more I do, the more I'm valued with God that somehow that I have confused God with my employer. Right. It works that way with your employer, right? Try it this week. Do more on your job than what you are expected to do and see that your employer will value you more. That's the way it works. But I have to tell you with God, it does not work that way. But some of you, some of us, have lived that way most of our life. And so what he's doing, he's pruning away this insecurity in order that we may bear more fruit. Because before I can bear the fruit that Christ has designed me to bear, this issue of insecurity in my life must be settled. That he came to do what I could not do, to grow me into the person that he wants me to be. Because he is the true vine. The father is the vine dresser that puts his hands into the dirt of my life and I rest in that. So, if you're in a season of your life where you feel like your road is bumpy, right? If you're in a season of your life where things are not going well, if you're in a season of life where you think that, man, I just not sure things could get a whole lot worse right now, If you just look at verse 1 and the second part of that as the father being the pruner, the vine dresser, then all of a sudden your mind goes to this punitive thought that what? Man, I have messed up and this is just God getting even with me and that's what's happening. Yes, but it doesn't diminish the pain. That's not the truth. What is happening is that when you put that verse together, part 1 and part 2, you realize that God works in those moments to prune the things away from you in life, especially their insecurity, so that you will bear more fruit. Wow. Man. That's tough. Mark, you should have chosen another I am statement. I agree, right? Yes, perhaps that's the truth. But yet this is the one, the last one. So I think it's very fitting as we bring our Easter season to a close together. Wow. So let me talk to you about another point this morning. Jesus is the true vine 
and you are the branches. It's the act of abiding in Christ is what it is. It's this thought that we have this theological thought of of that of union with Christ. And we want to talk about that in, in, in a moment together. But it's who Jesus is and who we are in him this morning. And so verse 13 says, listen, verse 13 is one of the most scandalous text that you'll find throughout the entire Bible. It is. Listen to it. It says this, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Well, what makes it so scandalous, Mark? Because he's saying, but you're clean. You're clean because you believe my words, not the things that you have done. You're clean because you have believed my words and not the things that you have done. It's the very same words that he said to Peter when he washed Peter's feet and he told Peter that he was already clean. Why? He knew already that Peter had in his heart to deny Christ. He knew all that. He knew what would happen when Peter was placed under pressure, yet he said that. It's a powerful thought. I think it's a thought that we have to take a moment to really work out in our minds and and in this moment together. We can't just leave it open-ended with us today, that you're clean because of the words of Jesus and not your works. It's because they believed, not because they did anything. They're 24 hours from betraying Jesus, is what they are in this very moment. Frame all of this in the way that it should be seen. They're 24 hours, Peter is 24 hours from his cursed lips when he will say not just that I don't know him. He even says, I have never known him, is what he says. So what Christ is talking about is his inescapable grace for our lives, that he is the true vine, that we are the branches. No longer do I have to struggle to fake it to be the vine, is what he's saying, that I am a branch. That's who I am. And when I don't get it right, I'm still connected to the vine. I'm loving Jesus even in the moments when the Father is pruning me. So just because I don't get it right doesn't mean that I'm disconnected from the vine. God is working. God is pruning me. That is part of this loving process. And then he says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What a powerful statement. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This great supernatural mystery we have of that of union with Christ, that I am in him and he is in with me. We struggle with this. We really do because we know that at some point we have harmed God with our behavior. We have disappointed God. We have broken a promise with God. And why would God want to have a relationship with us when we have treated God that way? And that is the very essence of our insecurity with God. It is. So I thought, well, how do we talk about this for a moment? Well, if you have kids, and, uh, or if you've ever been a kid, well, that includes all of us in the room, right? That kind of covers the whole room, correct? Yes. Then as a parent, when you arrive home after a day of work, you can always tell how the day is gone with the kids. Because if your kids come running to you, they climb you like a piece of playground equipment, they're telling you of everything that's gone during the day, every detail, then you know things have gone well. But if there, if there has been that wait until your father gets home moment, things are different, right? Or wait till your mom gets home moment, things are different. Then what is there? There is dread and avoidance. They don't want to come running to you, correct? Absolutely right. So there's dread and avoidance. You walk into the house and the house is dark. There's a cloud hovering over the tranquil cabin in the woods. There is. You know something has gone down and something is about to go down. Why? It's our human nature 
to believe that if you have offended, you avoid. Think about it. You walk into the lobby this morning. Someone is greeting you at the door. Sometime during the week, you have had words with this individual. And you have said something perhaps that offended them. You get almost to the front steps. You see that they're the greeter opening the door. What do you do? Oh, man, I forgot something in the car, right? Yeah, you go back. What did you forget? Oh, you're spiritual. You forgot your Bible, correct? Yes. So you go back and you go to your car and then you come to another entrance. Because why? Because when we have offended someone, our natural instinct and our humanity, because of our insecurity, is that we want to what? Avoid them. What's so stunning about these words that Jesus speaks? He says, abide or remain in me, and I remain in you. I love this. It's not that I'm earning this from God. It's not that I'm paying for this by my good behavior. He says, you're welcome, and you're delighted in me because of my work on the cross. So there's no reason for you to avoid God. That's exactly what he's saying. Mark, I have to clean myself up before I come to God and then God will accept me. That's not what he's saying at all. No, he says, come to me and then I will clean you up is what he's saying. God accepts us exactly the way we are, but we can't stay the way we are. And that's when God gets his hands into the dirt of our life. So how many times have you avoided God? Think about it. How many moments has there been when you have avoided, you have avoided him? Man, I think about Peter. You know, Peter is this brash you know, brother who just says whatever is on his mind, right? And, and I think about that of when, when Jesus simply talks about his betrayal. What does Peter do? Man, he puffs up with pride. And what does he say? Man, I, you know, Jesus, I will never leave you. In fact, he goes as far as to say... All of these other losers in the room, they may leave you. I will never leave you. I will be with you till the ultimate end of everything. I would even die for you. And then what does Peter do? Before the alarm clock goes off the next morning, what does Peter do? He denies Christ three times. He even argues with Jesus through this whole conversation as if Jesus is somehow wrong or mistaken about his assumption of what Peter is going to do. But then you fast forward post-resurrection and this moment where Peter has returned to fishing with some of the other disciples and they look on the shore They're out in the sea and they look on the shore and they see this figure. And one of the disciples says to Peter, it looks like Jesus. It looks like the Lord. So what does Peter do? He has a moment. Does he avoid and stay in the boat or does he go to Jesus? What does he do? He takes his cloak off. He ties it around his waist. He dives into the water and he swims to Jesus and he goes and he falls at the feet of Christ. Why? Because this entire time, God has had his hands in Peter's life, working in the dirt and the failure of his life and growing him and being the pruner, the vine dresser of his life. So Peter comes to this realization after all of this failure that he doesn't have to avoid God. To abide in Christ means that you don't have to avoid him, but run to him regardless of your brokenness. Regardless of your brokenness. The last thought, the last thought of the day. Jesus is the true vine. Abide in his love. Let me finish reading these verses for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, he says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So I think this brings a question for you and I as we tie all this together. 
what comes first, my obedience to Jesus or my joy in Jesus? What comes first, my obedience to Jesus or my joy in Jesus? If obedience is first before Jesus, then doesn't that make my obedience works? Isn't that, doesn't that make it works? That you're working your way to joy and isn't working your way to joy, isn't that the very elements that bring insecurity within our lives? Because I've tried to be the vine and all I have produced is sour grapes in my life. You see, I think for years growing up in the church, the church has told people that if you just stop doing these things in your life, then you'll have joy. If you just stop sinning, then you're going to have joy, right? Stop doing these things and you're going to have some joy in your life. The truth is, if you turn your eyes upon Jesus and the wonder of his great love and mercy for you, then the fruit of joy happens in your life. That's the truth. Joy starts in how I see Christ, not in how I'm living my life. That's the truth of joy. Is what it is. So the great battle of my life and your life is not that we change behavior. Now, the greatest battle is to look upon Christ and to rest in him and find ourselves secure in him. That is union with Christ. And that drives out the insecurities of my life even when I am the offender. But if you're living this life thinking that if I just stop doing these bad things then the joy is going to come in my life. And what Jesus is teaching us in these words is that that is absolutely the opposite of what's going to happen to you. What's going to happen to you is you're going to become more and more insecure in your relationship with God if you will look to Christ as the fuel of your life and his love as the fuel of your life. Then the joy comes and from that comes the fuel for you to be obedient to Christ. So, I have three minutes. You say, Mark, we know you. That doesn't mean a whole lot. I know, but I have three minutes left. So, I thought about this for a moment. I grew up as an only child. Now some of you know what's wrong with me, right? I've said this to you before, right? Now, you, now it makes sense, right? And, so, and for all the, the, the uh, people of the only child club in the room, you know, we, we have this thing, right, this connection. And so our group is an only child. And my mom spoiled me, no doubt. My mom spoiled me. In fact, it could actually be that she enabled me, perhaps. Perhaps maybe that's the word for it, right? And so she spoiled me, she did. And so I remember growing up, and I do remember that she would pick up after me all the time. And, you know, and I could, like, take a shower, and it just so happens that there's a towel down here, right? And I could, um, I could take a shower, and I could get out of the bathroom, and I could, like, leave it on the floor like this, right? And for some of the people in the room, that just infuriates you already, I know, but just hang on for a moment, right? And then what I knew in my own mind is that, that, my mom would somehow come behind me magically, right? She would pick that towel up. It would go to the, to the washing machine and it would re- appear the next morning in the bathroom and I would repeat the same process again, drop it on the floor. She would pick it up. She would wash it and put it back for me the next day. Now you make sense what's wrong with me, right? Isn't that correct? Yes, sure. It does, yeah. And it's... And, What's just funny is Siri on my watch just said, what's wrong with you? She just said that. I don't know if you could hear that or not, but I don't know. I must have pressed the button. I will not, I don't want to hear the answer to the question, right? I really don't from her. Um, But (laughs) I don't know why you do that. I have no idea, but whatever. And, And so, and so we do that. You know, I grew up with, the reality that my mom would always cook separate from me from everybody else because she would cook exactly what I wanted every meal. I know, that's awful, isn't it? Yes, yes. Mom, why did you do that? Well, you know, but anyway, it was always good. And, and so she would do that. 
And when I got married, I realized that all that stopped. An abrupt stop. I thought the world had come to an end. I was living in utopia, and that doesn't happen anymore, right? Nope, it doesn't happen. And so I would drop the towel on the floor like that, and Reba would come along, and she would say, what's that on the floor? Now, can I tell you something? When your wife is looking at things you dropped on the floor, and she poses the question, what is that on the floor? It's a trap. Okay, I just want to tell you. It's a trap. Understand that. She knows that's a towel. All right? You know that's a towel. It is a trap. And so what I realized in this whole process was that that all absolutely abruptly changed. I also learned that you never say to your wife in those moments, but mom would have always. You never say that because that's bad too, right? Yeah. Uh, That's a way to no longer be married to that person anymore. Isn't that correct? Yes, yes. So you don't go there. But now I'm... I'm house trained, okay? Understand that, right? I've been broken, so I'm house trained. <laughs> so, so I take the towel to the washer and take all the other things that I might leave laying on the floor to the washer as well. So here's my point of that. I don't get out of the shower one day and think, man, if I just take my towel to the washer then boy, that is going to jumpstart my love relationship with Reba like never before. And man, it, you know, it, it is going to just create this crazy love between us because me doing that act. What I realize is that I take my towel to the washer because I love her not because I want her to love me more. Some of you, you guys can come out and play. I I just messed you guys up and didn't give you your cue, okay? So you can come out. But don't you love it when I do that to you? Yes, you do. But you still love me, right? Okay, good, wonderful. Yeah, if not, watch out for the pruner, okay? All right? That was a joke. Actually, it wasn't. But anyway, go on. So, what I realize about this room, the demographics of this room, that you have young and not so young. And and no matter how many years you live in this world, you know, you're, you're never going to be good at being righteous. Just understand that, right? You're never going to be good at being righteous. That's the reality of our humanity. So we find ourselves in this pattern of taking our towel to the washing machine because somehow we want to jumpstart some love relationship with God and not realize that, no, I do that because of his love. That's the fuel for my life. That's it. Jesus was very plain when he said to his followers that day, that you're clean by my words, not by your actions. So when you find yourself enslaved to trying to somehow jumpstart your relationship with God by just trying to do good things and not bad things, then you are feeding the insecurity of your life. 
and it will grow to be a monster that will control you. So today is the day that you see Jesus for who he is, that he is the vine. Because all of our failures of trying to be the vine has produced nothing but sour grapes. Because outside of him, I can do nothing. That has always been truth, and that will always be truth for us. So allow me to pray with you and pray for you for a moment together this morning. So you would you just take a posture of prayer, whether it's bowing your heads or closing your eyes or just sitting there and focusing on the scriptures that we have read together today and allowing God to speak to you for a moment. So Father, we love you today and we thank you for speaking to us through your words. We thank you for opening the bread of life We thank you for opening the scriptures that speak to our hearts and where we are in this life. So, Father, we find ourselves on a journey, a lifelong journey of growth, that we are your field and you are, God, the pruner, the vine dresser. And so, Father, we ask today that you would prune away this insecurity of our life that somehow that what we do causes you to love us and to realize that's the furthest thing from the truth. that you love us regardless. And so, Father, in light of that, the times that we have avoided you, the times that we have avoided intimate conversations with you, the times that we have avoided confession, the times that we have avoided those moments of total openness with you. God, may we see that for what it is as a work of the enemy to confuse us with our insecurities but set us free from that today, God. Free us in our relationship with you. Father, it's not by our works but it's by your love today in our lives. So may that lead to joy in this life. And Father, we thank you for that in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us for a moment of